Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Taylor, when I was a kid, it was about space was big. We had the Apollo program. Mm. Um, you know, we'd watch it from school in our classrooms, launches and splashdowns in the middle of the ocean. We had people walking on the moon. It was really, really cool time. Uh, space is making a big comeback. You know, it's been kind of quiet since the space shuttle era, but it's making a big comeback. And now we've got billionaires going up seemingly weekly here into space. So Richard Branson over the weekend, I think we've got Jeff Bezos in uh, a matter of days, and then Elon Musk is out there somewhere, I'm sure. Um, let's get an overview of what's going on in the world of space. Laura Forsick, space analyst and owner of Astralytical, author of Rise of the Space Age Millennial. She's also NASA subject matter expert for planetary science missions. Laura, this is really a cool time for space travel and people that are really into space travel. Um, give us your sense, your takeaway on the importance of Sir Richard Branson's flight yesterday and the upcoming Jeff Bezos flight. What does it tell you about the future of space travel? This is really a great time because this is the emergence of true commercial a private spaceflight, where back in the 2000s, we saw commercial spaceflight beginning with tourists going to the International Space Station, but through Russian rockets and Russian training. And now we're seeing purely commercial efforts where um, the, just now yesterday, we saw Richard Branson and a crew flying on his own rocket through uh, Virgin Galactic. And then, as you said, in about eight days, we're going to see uh, Jeff Bezos and his crew fly on a Blue Origin rocket. And then later this this year, in September, we're going to see a crew go to um, orbital space and just orbit Earth for a few days through the Inspiration4 mission with SpaceX. So lots of really great private space flight going on. Laura, is it okay to ask sort of how you're thinking about the difference between the Virgin Galactic versus the Blue Origin? There's differences, I believe, and one has a few pilots, one I think is more automated. Is there a difference in the way you're thinking about uh, profitability for these companies or just frankly the technicals of, of going up there on, on two or three different, different ships that are operated differently? You're exactly right. There's a there's a big difference between the two. So one yesterday we saw was a carrier plane that released a space plane that launched with two pilots and four passengers. And the one that we're going to see in eight days, Blue Origin, is a traditional rocket with a capsule on top and the capsule separates and lands with parachutes. So that is a difference in approach. And we're going to have to see how the market plays out on whether customers prefer one method or the other or whether safety plays out one method or the other. But I think it's too early to say that one is better than the other. I think we're just going to have to see. And I will go on both of them. <laughs> I'm sure you would. I would, too. I'm not sure at $250,000 a seat, though, but for a lot of folks, probably worth it. So, Laura, what's the what are like next steps, do you think, for the commercialization, if you will, of space and space travel? What are there? I mean, these things are great. Uh, it's really interesting. But what are the next steps? We're seeing these two suborbital carriers come online with with paying passengers and also science. There's science that's being done. There was a science experiment on the one yesterday. So there's some really great opportunities there for not just rich tourists, but also for research institutions, NASA, and other governments that might be able to fly their science or do training for astronauts. There's also, as I said, SpaceX is going to be flying not just um, 
not just paying people to the International Space Station, as they've been doing with NASA astronauts since last year, but also just in orbit around the Earth in a free flyer, just doing a Crew Dragon free flyer, not even attached to the space station. But speaking of space stations, there are going to be private space stations coming on board in the next decade. So we should see companies like Axiom Space and others starting to put up space stations that will um, work with the International Space Station and eventually replace the International Space Station. It's just incredible. I think when you think about how far we've come, Paul, in the last even just decade in terms of commercial space flight. And, and Laura, I mean, it's interesting. I was hearing some funny conversations earlier this morning that eventually will run out of billionaires who can afford this and it'll want to be more mass market. How are you thinking about pricing and making it more affordable? What does that look like to you? Right. So right now, a trip to the International Space Station costs roughly $55 million. There's not many people who can afford that. But a trip to suborbital space is more affordable for, for a larger group of people, still not me. But as you said, roughly a quarter of a million dollars. We don't know the price that Blue Origin is going to sell their tickets for. Um, and that might be affordable for people who save up enough money or for people who are sponsored. There's a group called Space for Humanity and other groups that are trying to sponsor the quote unquote normal people who can fly on suborbital space flight. Um, and then as this technology becomes more and more common, just as other technologies started out with the wealthy and then were brought down in price to make it more accessible to the common person, the theory is that that will happen with space flight as well. So, Laura, just want to get a sense here. When I grew up, again, it was NASA. It was the U.S. government leading the way. My question now is where is NASA in the global space competitive race vis-a-vis -vis China, Russia? Where are we as a country now as becomes, you know, maybe some of the responsibility shifts from NASA to these commercial ent entities? NASA is very focused on its Artemis program right now, which is going to send the next uh, the next man and the first woman and the first person's color to the moon it is as soon as 2024. And that's really exciting because there is a bit of a geopolitical competition there because the Chinese and the Russians partner to do a lunar base as well in a different time frame, about a decade later than NASA intends to. But NASA is partnering with countries all around the world, something called the Artemis Accords, where they partnered with 12 countries around the world. Um, it's going to be a real international partnership there. It's not going to be like the Apollo program, where it was mainly focused on the United States. This is really going to be an international partnership. We even have a Canadian astronaut confirmed to fly with American astronauts on the Artemis II mission around the moon before the first lunar landing in the Artemis III mission. So that's really exciting to see us finally return back to the moon. Laura, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this, but it's my job to ask. So I'm going to ask it anyways. I'm going to try to do this in the nicest way possible. As a space analyst, what is the risk, the headline risk around the carbon footprint? I mean, you think about all the focus on going green and protecting our planet, and then you have a bunch of billionaires who are going into space for fun. Is there a risk of any backlash on wondering what this is, is doing to the environment? It's no more harmful to the environment than the other types of transportation that we use. Okay. And that is a key, you know, that's a key point right there, right? That we need to be responsible in how we develop our technology and improve our technology to be responsible stewards of Earth. And one thing that I would like to personally experience, I've only heard from other astronauts, is something called the overview effect, where people who see the Earth from above, whether that's you know, in orbit or in suborbit, um, they come across a different perspective where mm -hmm. they actually feel more environmentally connected to our right. planet. So that might be a way that changes people's minds and makes them more environmentally conscious by 
seeing yep. our Earth as one fragile planet. Hey, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you coming on and sharing your thoughts. Laura Forsyth, space analyst and owner of Astra Lytical, also rise of the space age millennials. This is Bloomberg. You know, as I talk to Tom Keen, as I typically do, it's always a question of when do we get Tom into this market? He's in that triple leverage all cash fund, and uh, he always feels like he's missed his opportunity. But here we are at all time highs again for the equity indices. Is it time to raise cash? What do we do here? David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, joins us. I believe he's in Colorado today. Why would you be in Florida when you could be in Colorado in uh, the summer? David, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, what do we tell our good friend Tom Keen about these equity markets? Well, thank you very much, Paul. And I, I gather Taylor is with you, and it's very nice to chat with old friends from Summit County, Colorado. We're at 9,000 feet. Nice. And you just announced Weber Grill, and I would say if Taylor and you can find your way to Colorado, I will cook you a steak <laughs> on the deck on that Weber Grill. It's very terrific. good. So let, as for Tom Kane and what he should do with cash, I can't say, but I can tell you we have built a cash reserve here recently. We are not fully invested. Um, it's been a marvelous first quarter, much beyond anyone's expectations. And my grandfather, bless his memory, taught me you never get hurt taking some profits. So we took a part of the profits of the first quarter where we had achieved in six months what we thought we would achieve in the whole year, and we banked a little and are waiting for opportunity. The rest of the portfolios in the United States ETF structured portfolio, the U.S. ETF portfolio, is heavily overweight the healthcare sector almost double market weight. Market weight for the, if you look at the sectors, is approximately 14% or so. We're about 28, very broadly diversified within healthcare, devices, pharmaceutical, biotech, the gamut structured with ETFs. And we believe the pandemic is not over. Long haul COVID is with us for a while, maybe years. And the healthcare sector has a monumental task ahead of it and will step up and deliver results as best as it can. You know, David, we love getting you on this program more than just the opportunity to have you grill us some steaks. You mentioned you're not fully invested. And I am curious, what would it take? What is the opportunity? Is it a 10% pullback? What is it that you would be willing to commit more cash? Well, I think there's several major issues about which there's uncertainty. Uncertainty means you can't put probabilities on it, Taylor. We don't know where this China initiative, which is anti-U.S., anti-capital markets, pulling IPOs, putting on restrictions, dealing with 250 securities of various types that trade in the United States, is going to lead us. We have a capital market conflict between the United States and China, the two largest economies in the world, number one. We don't know where that goes, but it can't be pretty. Second, we don't have herd immunity in the United States, and we have 25 or 30 percent of the population that is rejecting science. Now, there's a debate about science, no question about it, but there's also evidence 
And when you look around, you see that the vaccination rollout is not working completely as expected. And then you look at the rest of the world and you say there's 6.8 billion people out of 7.8 billion that have not had a vaccination at all. They're in places where public health systems are deficient. So these are massive shocks. In addition to fires and climate change as a massive shock. So what do you do when you have several black swans flying around in a flock? You pause, you put some cash on the side, you wait, you say, I don't know. And therefore, I've had a great run in the stock market recovery. Now I need to pause. And that's what we're doing. When we redeploy and where remains to be seen, we're open, but we're not committing to that now. David, about 30 seconds left. What, is, what do you think would be the next move from, by this Federal Reserve? Well, I think the Fed doesn't do anything until they get to the Jackson Hole meeting. And then they have to soft, gradualist. Uh, very baby step try to ease back on easing a very difficult task for any central bank, especially ours, under these circumstances. That's how it looks to me, Paul. All right, David, thank you so much. We, as always, appreciate uh, your time. Uh, enjoy the cool weather, hopefully out in uh, 10,000 feet in Colorado. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Cumberland Advisors. Again, they have about $3 billion in assets under management. And I love Taylor David. He tells you exactly what he's doing with his cash, whether he's building cash, putting it to work. It's really an interesting perspective. And he's one of the guys that is the in the middle of all the craziness of muni bonds and the technicals and actually manages to sit down and explain it to you and <laughs> great muni portfolio as well. So that's certainly great. some fond memories. Well, I'm going to bring in Ben Emmons, Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors because I get his research notes. And the problem with his research notes is he writes just too many of them. So whenever they hit my inbox, I got to stop whatever I'm doing and read them because there's always good stuff in there. But before we get to earnings and markets and all that kind of stuff, I'm going to talk space with Ben. Ben, we saw Sir Richard Branson go into space over the weekend. Is this a business? As, as an investor, do you pay attention to that kind of stuff? Hey, Paul. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, you pay attention. You know, It was obviously an amazing moment uh, to have this commercial flight into space. You know, what I think is really good by Richard Branson is, you know, he's the CEO of the company and he takes the risk, right, to go up there because it's not without risk. And then comes down back to earth safely and says, look, I just did the custom experience. I just showed you live <laughs> on Twitter in, in the capsule what you can experience when you go up in space, right? So, you know, that's a perfect uh, marketing strategy, but it does highlight how far we've gotten with this technology, right? He spoke to that this was not, he was dreaming about this like 2004, 2007, so that they were working on these plans to get themselves up in space. So I guess what will happen in the future, we'll go a lot faster now. We're going to get a lot more flights in the future. And if you look at that business, you know, they estimate that the, the total valuation of space economy, so to speak, is about $158 billion, which is a lot of different elements to it. But you know, as in space exploration and, and all kinds of uh, industrial activity, but that can become significantly larger, right, with, with you know, events that we saw yesterday. So I think if I would put my mind into Kathy Wood's mind, I'd say, like, she's probably right. Like, this is a, a new industry, and Richard Branson just took us right up, 
league bounce with the Rockets right there yesterday. You know, you want to talk about other things that the market is certainly paying attention to, Ben. We love that you can go cross-asset for us from space tourism to bond yields. And, and I feel like we're at that sweet spot where we were happy that bond yields came down because of the way that that can inflate some of the equity valuations. But it's also giving us a little bit of a worrying signal about the future of economic growth. Where are you in the sweet spot of what yields are telling you at this moment? You're right, Taylor. There is you know, something about declining yields in an environment where economic data is really strong. It doesn't coincide with one another. And it reminds me a little bit of you know, pre-financial crisis in the 2005 period. You know, really strong economy, strong housing market, a lot of confidence, but yields will continue to decline. So there is a bit of a dynamic on the one hand of positioning that's that is causing that. So people were short and get wrong-footed. There is, I think, an improved message by the Fed, just like back then, maybe somewhat more predictable, what we can expect in terms of tapering. But there's also something about the economy itself. It, we may have gotten to a point of, of a form of overheating, and the bond market has said, like, you're going to start cooling off. So I come down on that debate that yields are probably this low, really, because we're maybe somewhat of a cooling economy. And that keeps, you know, the balances in the markets pretty solid, right? We have low volatility. Stock market is doing fairly well. If anything, the, the rotation back into tech is also supporting other sectors. Ahead of these earnings, I think low yields play into the people's mind, like, yes, the economy is not in a recession or anything. It's just moderating against really strong earnings. So I think it's, it's good for markets. Ben, we're going to have the, the large financial institutions begin to report earnings this week. What are you looking for? Yeah, I think that the banks itself have obviously a tremendous base effect in their earnings from last year. You know, your, your colleague, um, Gina Adam Martin, has these great charts on that. And I looked up yesterday, the year-in-year growth rate is unbelievable. We'll see in the next few days. It could be, could be as high as 100% in some of these cases. What you, of course, will look for is that what is really the loan demand uh, look like on the ground because now the economy's really got traction and we're open. What's really changed there is their decline in any deposits and what are they planning to do with all that excess liquidity they've taken up at the reserve, uh, yeah, the reserves itself, the excess reserves as well as the uh, reverse repo facility. And then obviously what they've announced after the stress test, the buyback plans that do matter for markets. I think there's expectations you could tell today from the, the price action that the banks will come out not only with good earnings but with intentions to really further support the equity valuation. So I think banks will do quite well in this period. Are those buybacks boosting those valuations that you alluded to within the financial sector? Is that broad-based as well? Are we expecting to hear in these second quarter earnings from CEOs a lot of commentary about using this excess cash to buy back shares? So the banks are a bit unique, Taylor, in that sense, right? Because of, you know they, they basically got relief from the Federal Reserve to start buying back shares so after a year of being excluded from that. Whereas the buyback index itself, you have an S&P buyback index that's now, by the way, gained quite a bit of value, but the buyback levels have been low. So yes, it could be, you know, depending upon, again, this is a signal, I think, maybe what people try to connect with the strong economy and low yields. Is this, are earnings telling us that, you know, a lot of companies sit on a lot of cash and are gonna deploy it in investment but buyback shares, then in that sense would not necessarily be a good signal. So I think it's really the banks that will take the lead there because they've been given the lead. Right. The other companies will see, right? I, I think it's uh, there's a lot going on in the economy, that's for sure. 
Hey, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you as well as your research notes. Ben Emmons, Managing Director, Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors, giving us his thoughts on these markets, on space, and on some of these bank earnings coming up this week. Well, we've got markets once again, equity markets uh, setting all-time highs, and that's despite the fact that the COVID-19 uh, is still very much with us on a global scale. Even within the confines of the United States, there's there's large portions of this country that are under-vaccinated and, again, as a result, facing uh, some challenges from the Delta variant. But the markets, that once was a thing for the markets. It doesn't appear like it is as much anymore. Christina Hooper joins us. She's Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. Uh, why do we like Christina? Because she's a very nice person to have on. She's very smart. And Invesco has $1.3 trillion in assets under management, so she knows where the money is going. Christina, thanks so much again for joining us here. Again, how do you think about, I mean, gosh, you just take us back, you know, a year plus and the markets was, the narrative was completely driven by, uh, you know, virus trends and, and, and hospitalization rates that was really moving the market. And now, even though we have vaccines, there's still some concerns out there, there but the market just doesn't seem to care. Well, the market, the stock market doesn't seem to care, right? But it seems as though the 10-year Treasury yield, the Treasury market, does seem to care. Now, I was uh, raised in this industry on the notion that quite often the 10-year Treasury yield is a better indicator of fear than anything we can find like the VIX uh, in the stock market. So this could be a scenario where we have stocks um, uh, seeing that um, there is economic growth that's quite strong, um, seeing very accommodative monetary policy and reacting one way. And then we see the 10-year Treasury seeing the other side of the coin, right? Um, the parts of the world that aren't well vaccinated, even the pockets of America that aren't well vaccinated, and are suggesting there are reasons to be concerned. Um, it's it's arguably a little bit of diversification here in terms of, of the different reactions in, in different parts of markets. Christine, if I could politely push back on that, Please. could you argue that spreads are also telling us what the equity markets. I'm looking at 85 basis points on investment grade over treasuries, under 270 on high yield over treasuries. Spreads are telling me there's nothing to worry about. What do you make of that? Well, I think that that is arguably the overarching story, right? That um, that what we are going through right now is likely to be temporary. Um, last year at this time, we did not have a cure for COVID-19. We had no vac vaccine available. And in fact, we were hearing from medical experts who said that it was unlikely we'd get a, an effective vaccine against a coronavirus anytime soon. Now, fast forward a year, and the scenario is very different. Our biggest problem is vaccine rollouts. We have effective vaccines. So we know that the challenges we're going through now are likely very temporary in nature. All right. So, Christina... Earnings week is kicking off this week uh, with uh, the big bank earnings here. Um, what are you looking for uh, from earnings this quarter? Uh, well, I think we, we very much expect a strong earnings season, and that should come as no surprise. Um, so what we really want to hear from is the guidance and the future. 
Um, what can we expect? Because there are, of course, concerns that maybe this is as good as we're going to get. And so to hear that guidance from companies uh, in all different industries is going to be very, very important in terms of giving a sense of where the stock market goes from here um, at, uh, in the back half of this year. Christina, one thing that we love getting you on the program is because you have global in your title. What is the headline risk of investing in Chinese stocks given the regulatory crackdown? As we spoke last week on TV, a stroke of a pen, Beijing changes the rules. How do you think about that as sort of a risk to a China, to an EM portfolio? Well, certainly there are regulatory risks uh, in all corners of one's portfolio. Um, right now, there are concerns that we could see greater regulation of technology in the United States. So I think oh, investors need to uh, look at their portfolio with uh, an eye towards where there could be potential regulatory changes. And of course, that includes what is happening in China. Um, and that would argue for more diversification, more um, potentially um, more exposure to other parts of emerging markets right now. Um, but, uh, but I would say that we can't panic about this. Um, we just need to follow it closely. And again, recognize that there are regulatory risks in all different kinds of places, including those who have um, crypto components to their portfolios. Christina, where are you and the portfolio managers at Invesco right now? Where are you guys doing your most work looking for opportunities? Um, well, certainly, uh, every every portfolio manager is looking at, at their investable universe for opportunities. Um, what I would say is when I take a step back and we're looking at it more from uh, a big picture perspective, um, there are a lot of very, very interesting themes going on right now, um, in particular areas like cybersecurity. Uh, it's not getting as much attention, I don't believe, as it should. Um, but this, um, this is an area that is um, regularly cited by CEOs uh, before COVID-19 as one of, of the biggest concerns, right? Cybersecurity. And so I would anticipate that we're going to see more CapEx spending in general, more CapEx spending on tech, um, more specifically, and more tech CapEx spending on cybersecurity. Yep. So that's just one theme uh, among many, but it's one that I think deserves a lot of attention right now. Very interesting. We always love uh, getting your thoughts. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco, getting her thoughts on markets. Again, a big earnings week, which will give us a, a real view on uh, the strength of corporate America. And as Christina was suggesting, uh, the focus also, and maybe increasingly, will be on that forward-looking guidance. Uh, and we'll certainly have all of that for you. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.